Tonight, a dark day for democracy and a free press after a prominent anti-corruption crusader was blown up by a bomb in Malta. The case of a journalist assassinated in the European Union. Today we'll be focusing on the brutal murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia in Malta. Caruana Galizia's death has sent shockwaves across the continent. People are asking how could this happen inside the EU? She, she was known as a fearless, fearless investigator. If Daphne was on your case, then you knew you had something to worry about. We're going to talk to two journalists about this case, and corruption more generally in Malta. Okay, so let's start with where Malta is and what it's all about. It's a small island nation, smallest member state of the European Union, and it's right south of Italy and north of Libya in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean, to give you an idea of where we're standing. It's a really popular tourist destination and it's considered to be very safe, certainly for tourists anyway. I mean, you know, I think it's a low crime rate, you know, not many muggings and stuff like that. Beautiful it's beaches. Beautiful. Pretty peaceful most of the time. So when there was a car bombing of a high-profile journalist, this was not just massive news in Malta, but all across the European Union. Well, this stuff doesn't happen in the EU. Right. You think of journalists being murdered, and you think of much more dodgy places than With dictators, Syria, you know, yeah. Libya, places like that. You don't think of an European member state. I mean, you'd be pretty shocked if somebody blew... a, polit a politician or a journalist up here in Germany, right? Exactly. Like, that would be pretty... that would make headlines across the world, and it's really no different in Malta. So who was Daphne Caruana Galizia? She, as we said, was a well-known journalist. She really took aim at people at all levels of power, including the most powerful, like the prime minister and his cabinet. But not just the people who are in government at the moment. She also took aim at the opposition. She, she, you know, she looked at anyone who was, or she deemed, or through her investigations, she found to be de dealing in dodgy business. Right, if you looked at her blog, she posts liberally on all sorts of issues. She's prolific, sometimes three, four, five articles a day. Right, and sometimes they're on lighter things like, you know, how much the outfit of a government official's wife costs. You know, she goes piece by piece and looks at that. And sometimes they are much more in-depth, and she looks at things like Malta's dirty money and ties um, to Libyan oil exports. And in fact, in a haunting post that she put up, um, in mid-October, shortly before she was killed. Um, she wrote something where the final line read, there are crooks everywhere you look now, the situation is desperate. And a lot of people think that she was killed for her work as a journalist and the things that she published, particularly about the current government. Caruana Galicia was also the woman that exposed Malta's links to the Panama Papers. She had been described as a one-woman WikiLeaks in, in Malta. Mm. Yeah. And she was known for her work um, looking into corruption, uh, particularly by the Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat. And so since her death, he's come out um, and asked for her family's support in offering a reward to find the people who killed her. What do they have to say about that? They flatly refused. They said they do not support offering a reward and have called for the government, the inner circle, Joseph Muscat and his inner circle to stand down. Right. They think that even if they find the people who actually planted the bomb and killed Daphne Caruana Galizia, it won't actually serve justice because they think that corruption is so much more deeply rooted in Malta that this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
So to find out more, we called up a journalist at the Times of Malta. Jacob Borge has been working there and says that everybody is talking about this case. Hi, Jacob. It's Claire calling from the You're Up to Date podcast. Hi, Claire. So have you been working on this case? Oh, well, to be honest, every every journalist or reporter in Malta has been working on this case. You know, it's Yeah, it's been big news mad. all across Europe, and I think it shocked a lot of people on the continent. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it, it's inconceivable. We're still trying to come, come to terms with what happened. You know, we, we thought we, we operated in a relatively safe environment, and, you know, the game has completely changed now. Does Daphne Caruana Galizia's death come as a surprise to people living in Malta? Well, you know, Daphne Daphne took on took on, you know, some very some very powerful people. You know, criminal underworld, top politicians. Her her last big story was about allegations that the Azerbaijani president's daughter transferred money to the Maltese Prime Minister's bank account. So, you know, she she's taken on all manner of people. So it's yes, it is a surprise, job. but, you know, it's, we're still trying to come to terms with it, to be honest. And, Jacob, what was her reputation like as a journalist within Malta? She, she was known as a fearless, fearless investigator. If, if Daphne was on your case, then you knew you had something to worry about. So she'd been working on some stories that were, or she'd previously published stories that really took aim at people in high positions of power. What does her death mean for freedom of press in Malta? I know it's it's to be honest, I think everyone's gonna think twice before publishing publishing, you know, a big story about someone in power now. And I suppose that that was the message that these people who behind behind the murder wanted to send. You know, this this was this was done in a spectacular manner. You know, whoever wants to do this wants to send out a message to everyone saying, you know, watch your backs. So they've sent out a warning to other journalists saying don't go looking into corruption and um, unsavory things that are going on on Malta, or this could also happen to you. I don't think it's just limited to journalists, to be honest. I think it's, you know, anyone who who speaks out about corruption, civil society, government officials who are potential sources for journalists, you know, sends a scary message to everyone. Yeah, a very, very serious warning. Yes, exactly, because, you know, Daphne was the most well-known journalist, so I'm sure whoever did this obviously wanted to silence Daphne, and they wanted to silence everyone else, you know. Get everyone else shaking in their boots as well. Why do you think this has happened now? I mean, she's been working in Malta for a really long time. Why now? Well, you know, Daphne's had some very, very big stories over the past few years. Obviously, she was the one who who broke the Panama Papers here first before anyone else. And like I said before, the the last we had the general election in June, and a few months before that, she she broke this massive story that I told you about, where she alleged that the Azerbaijan's president's daughter transferred money to a secret. And the company held by the prime minister's wife. That's obviously that that called a snap election in Malta. The prime minister called an election in Malta because of her allegations. So something she did had serious political ramifications. Yeah, yes, definitely caused the general election. Yeah. So how is it possible that something like this is happening in a country in the European Union, a bloc that prides itself on democratic values and protecting things like the free press? Well, you know, Malta over the past few years, it's it's got to attract a lot of Dirty money, and like I said, the Azerbaijani Azeri interests here are growing exponentially day by day. The state Azerbaijan state company Sokar has a wanted wanted stake in a new power station that this this government built, and the we have a cash for, a cash for passport scheme where basically rich rich people can buy their way into Maltese citizenship and gain gain EU citizenship as well. 
Mm-hmm. So you know, there's dirty money, and it's not more has changed over the past few years. What do you think? What do you think needs to be done to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again? Well, you know, how how do you prevent some something like this? To be honest, yeah. someone was out to get Daphne, and you know, I I don't think there was any stopping the actual murder. But what needs to be done is a whole raft of constitutional changes because one of the biggest criticisms has been the, the terrible response by the police. That they could have done more to protect her? More to protect her and even the way the investigation is being handled. You know, So, like I said, Daphne has written about government officials, opposition officials, everyone. And uh, the investigation is being conducted by a man who is married to a government minister. So even, you know, that, that does not look good. There are EU investigators involved as well as FBI investigators. Is that true? Yes, yes, yes. But, they, you know, obviously the, the Maltese police are taking the lead. They're just basically yeah, taking on a consultancy role with all these other investigators. Now, as a journalist working in Malta, how safe do you feel now? It's a wake-up call to everyone. You know, everyone's going to look over their shoulder and I think, you know, say a little prayer when starting the car, as, you know, as morbid as it may sound. Would it curb what you are willing to investigate or report on? No, I think we all have to, you know, we owe it to Daphne to, to double up on her efforts because she, she was the, she was Malta's best investigative journalist. She stuck her neck out time after time and, you know, some of her stories put, put the mainstream media to shame. You know, she was able to cover stuff that we, we never even got close to touching. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. No worries. Thanks, Jacob. All See right. ya. Bye. So this intimidation of the press has had the, like you said, reverse effect of making everybody look at Malta and what kind of stuff they do um, to question things like dirty money um, and links to Libyan oil. Possibly no coincidence. Yeah. Another thing that has made headlines with Malta recently is the fact that they sell European uh, Union passports. Yeah, for a clean mill. Yeah. <laughs> well, not that clean. I know you're looking um, for one, so uh, if you want to buy a Unfortunately, home anyone got a Mediterranean. I've got some crowdfunding. Anyone want to fund my you know, aims <laughs> of getting passport. a Maltese passport? Yeah. Um, no, but seriously, the Maltese government offer the, this scheme where you can um, pay a certain amount of money. It's quite, it's quite a, a steep price. It's 800-odd thousand euros, and then you have to also, on top of that, either purchase or rent a Maltese property. It's quite complicated. Right, but the people who are actually buying these are, are often not staying on Malta. It's just their ticket into the European Union. As we've said before, once you've got a European passport, you can live and travel and work anywhere. And have access to the financial systems, basically, I think is also another key. It's a huge part of it. So as it turns out, I have a friend who wrote a book about small island nations that sell citizenship. Very convenient. She's my former colleague from Reuters, Atusa Abrahamian, and she wrote a book called The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. It seems silly not to give her a call, so we rang her up to ask what is the deal with Malta selling EU passports. So Malta started selling uh, European Union passports in 2014 under a program called the Individual Investor Program. Uh, Before 2014, Malta sold effectively um, what amounts to permanent residency. It amped up uh, this program in 2014 with the help of a private company called Henley & Partners. Um, Henley & Partners are big names in the passport buying world. And yes, there is a passport buying world. It's a whole industry and it's on my book. And uh, Henley and Partners uh, helped them design a program that basically required uh, certain types of investments, um, certain assurances that the person who was applying for citizenship had at least on paper a residence in Malta. 
And uh, the result was that for just over about a million euros, anybody who passes a background check and has enough money can become a multi-citizen. Shame I don't have a million bucks. I'm really looking for EU citizenship. That's a bummer. (laughs) I mean, look, if you, Malta, there's another way to look at it. Yes, it's a ton of money, but Malta also has free university, free childcare. It's a beautiful place. The people are really nice. So if you really break it down, it's kind of a good deal. Yeah, definitely sounds like it. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to live there? (laughs) Millionaires are doing this because they want universal pre-K, right? And that's, that's the rub. That's why people object to this program. It's foreigners coming in, maybe using Malta as a tax base, maybe using the passport as a way to travel more easily. It's uh, it's not necessarily people who are going to live in Malta and participate in the Maltese economy or be members of Maltese society. It's it's a passport of convenience. Okay, so that's why people have a beef. But there's a whole thing, a link here somewhere between um, buying passports and money laundering. But I don't really, un- I don't see the link. So can you explain that? So I don't have evidence to, to tell you too much more about the link either. Um, there's obviously a fear that people from outside will buy Maltese passports, set up businesses in Malta, and use their relatively uh, low taxes and liberal um, regulatory regime to do some shady things with money, uh, to, to move money around. I can't get into more specific examples because I just don't know. Um, But that was definitely a concern when this program was launched, and even more so now that there has been this unfortunate incident of the car bombing that killed a journalist who was trying to expose these alleged uh, money laundering schemes. That was Atusa Abrahamian, author of The Cosmopolites, explaining how Malta is giving the impression it's really willing to sell anything for a little bit of cash. Okay, so let's go now to another story that has been making top headlines in Europe this week. That is, of course, the subject of our last episode. Which we hope you've all listened to. (laughs) The crisis in Catalonia. Honestly, this story has moved on so much since we last recorded that we want to bring you up to speed in what's been happening in the last week. So we told you to keep watching this story. When we left you last, the leader, Carlos Puigdemont, was facing an ultimatum from Spain to clarify whether Catalonia intended to declare independence. Short version is, they did. And Spain made good on its threat and imposed direct rule, taking control of lots of Catalan institutions, taking away a lot of the autonomy that they'd previously enjoyed, which is the opposite of the effect they'd hoped to achieve. So what's the latest? Last Friday, Spain dissolved Catalonia's parliament um, in a bid to, as they say, get rid of the secessionists. And the former Catalan leader, Puigdemont, and 13 of his government all went to Brussels, the capital of Europe. And there was so much speculation of what they were going to do there. Was he going to claim asylum? Was he trying to escape justice from Spain? I was completely shocked to hear that he'd gone to Brussels, to be honest. I mean, I was not expecting that came from complete left field. He's gone to whip up support from Europe, which, as we said last week, has become increasingly clear he's not going to get. They've all mostly said that they're going to back the Spanish government, basically, and whatever it does. Spain's Prime Minister, Mariana Rajoy, has... Um, said he's going to charge them with rebellion, sedition, and a misuse of public funds. Right. And Spain's also summoned Puigdemont and um, his deposed government up to testify this week. If he doesn't turn up, Madrid could order his arrest. But on Tuesday, he came out and made a public statement in Brussels. He um, faced the press and said that he would happily go back if he was going to be given a free and fair trial. Um, But also that he wanted to contest elections, which the Spanish government have called for December 21st. They're Mm -hmm. going to have 
Catalonian um, in the region of Catalonia, elect, you know, regional elections, and he said that he would like to stand in those run in those elections. Right. So it's been a political whirlwind. Keep watching this story. It's far from over. Um, we thought in the last week as this chaos was unfolding and as Spanish forces went in to take back control of Catalan institutions, we wondered what the people who had originally been behind the pro-independence movement were thinking now. Because like we said, the original goal was to get away from Spain and suddenly they're really, it's, it's a divided um, region and they've actually lost a lot of what they previously had. I really thought that a lot of Catalans, particularly those of pro-independent Catalans and people who went out and voted yes, would be furious at Carlos Puigdemont. But it, it or seems furious it, at Spain. That too. Um, but it seems that it's, uh, of course, as always, far more complicated. So we gave Monica a call. Do you we remember her from our last episode? She was the Catalan that we spoke to in the last episode. Yeah, she um, was the one saying that she wanted a chance to make her own country and was you know, vocally passionate about the movement. Oh, so a lot has happened since we last spoke. How are you feeling? Well, it's really, really frightening and confusing. We independentists, uh, I think in my circle at least, we feel it's right to hold a new election and we definitely want to be part of the voting. But I think most of us are a bit scared or a bit um, not so sure what's the reaction of the Spanish government would be. Independentists or separatists, let's say, people who wanted to vote yes or did vote yes. How, yes. how do you feel about former ousted president Carlos Puigdemont now? Um, I've seen people being very critical about the fact that he's in Belgium at the moment. But when I speak about it with my friends, at least... In my circle, we feel like, okay, what was he supposed to do? Just uh, get imprisoned uh, and then not being able to be operative, that also would have made him a useless president for mm. us. At least, in my opinion, this way, he's being able to make this uh, conflict a bit more international than it was until now. Is there a sense that this has backfired at all, that you've actually lost out on the things you were trying to gain, or are people mm. optimistic about the I definitely think some received? people feel that way. Uh, and I can see why. But on the other hand, if we would ca have kept the, the, our heads low and not done anything, we would also never have uh, put this in the map. People ask me, you know, is, are we on a verge of a civil war? And as I was saying to you, I think the last time, no, like we don't have a, an army in Catalonia. So if mm. they really go uh, violent or if they really use the full force of the state, it's going to be just repression because we cannot fight back. Wow, so unable to fight back sounds like Madrid really has Catalonia in a corner at the moment. Absolutely, I thought it was surprising. I definitely thought people like Monica, you know, pro-independence, secessionist people, people who voted yes, would really be annoyed with Carlos Puigdemont. But it sounds as though she said, yes, there's a small flavor of that, of course, but that it's, it's certainly more complicated and that a lot of her friends think that he had no choice. Yeah, I've also seen many people really proud of him for actually seeing it through. This is a hugely politically unpopular thing to do, especially from a European perspective. And he's the leader who was elected to lead Catalonia to secede from Madrid, and he's gone ahead at great personal and political expense to do it. So we'll see what happens to him for having done so. 
Anyway, that's all from us this week. In case you missed it, we are now in the iTunes store. Hopefully Ooh. you're listening to us now in the iTunes store. But in case you're not, Hello from your iPhone. open up your iTunes store. Or non-Apple device. Or your non-Apple device player. We're also on Stitcher. <laughs> Download us there. Leave us five stars. Um, not four, five. And please tell your friends so they can find out about us and learn everything they need to know about Europe from us. You can, of course, still keep up to date on our website at europetodate.com or follow us on SoundCloud, Facebook, and, of course, on Twitter at Europe Today. That's Europe, like the continent, E-U-R-O-P-E. And that's all from us today. I'm Claire Richardson. And I'm Rebecca Ritters. Until, Until next time. time.